I know such little about you. Uh, you have a cool hat. You're in the army. Uh, you're married to Mackenzie, but I'm so drawn to you because you just spoke um, to who you are um, in your in your struggles, and I just so appreciative for you to to lead us all um, as a man, and just to name that that I I don't know if that felt vulnerable, but it was. It, I think there was some courage in that, and I appreciate you taking um, taking the time to name that, and I'm um, drawn in. So. Um, I hardly remember your question because I was just so drawn in. Um, so you can go. Well, so I think something to acknowledge about, and again, we're not military, so I don't want to speak in ways that I don't know. Um, but the distant boy, especially when you're deployed, you have to be distant. I mean, there's, there's just no way around that. So the longing is more lacking engaging a lack of emotional distance. So what does it look like to hear Mackenzie say, I'm losing my mind, my son's losing his mind, and I know you want to fix it, right? And, and you want to come home and you want to change it. Um, but I think just hearing her and saying, gosh, I hate that it's so hard. I long to be home. I long to be with you. I long to help you. I'm so sorry this is so hard. Um, the fact that you, as Luke said, um, just totally were vulnerable and risked, you just led us beautifully. And you led and risked for your wife. Thank you. So I think utilizing the intentional pieces um, of instead of hearing it as you're failing, instead of, because I'm guessing maybe that's what you're hearing, like she's struggling, therefore I'm failing. Um, she's and my son are in a bad place, and therefore that says something about me as a man. Your dignity can't be wrapped up in that, although it's, yes, our identity is, is marriage and oneness. It's a piece of it. So... Um, to not hear the threat of your identity, but hear an invitation. So you said, and, and you said, Mackenzie doesn't want to bring it up. Mackenzie, you got to bring that up. That's on you. That is on you. You are not loving your husband well by suppressing it and then later raging. That's cruel. I know because I do it. So I think for y'all both to engage one another in that way, not hearing that it's something to fix or hear that it's something that you're doing wrong, but to just, gosh, I'm so sorry. I know this is hard. I hear that. And I long to be with you. I long, I wish I could fix it. Um, is there anything I can do from here to help? The answer is probably no. And that's going to feel really helpless and really hopeless. And yet I think knowing that she's partnered with as you are physically distant that is what oneness looks like when you're far away. Is that helpful? Uh, I would add, um, I'm, I'm on the outside looking in. I'm not military, never been, never known it. Um, appreciative of it um, so much. Um, but there is a dynamic there that it, 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 from the outside looking in, it just seems so hard and almost unsustainable for connection that I would, I would wager that it breeds that uh, distant boy t mentality 
which I think necessitates overcompensating by being proactive and engaging uh, with thoughtfulness and, and, and being very directive in, in how you move towards your wife at every opportunity that you can. And uh, that's, that's the call of every man, but maybe a little bit more so for the Army. There's risk, I think, in leading your relationship in that way, too, because you're going to fail. Um, I, I'm, the, I'm working on part of a certification that's Gottman Counseling, and it's a very kind of cognitive for couples, but it's helpful because it's a lot of just practical tools. And I'm finding working with military couples, I'm like, right, so what does this look like practically? How do, I, how do we solve this? Because the, you're not choosing to be away, uh, so to speak. So I think... Like, my thought, I probably think, like, can we read a book together? Are there things that you can be proactive, lead and initiate that will connect you, that will create those conversations, create connection? The fear and risk in that is, well, what if one of you doesn't read the chapter? And you're supposed to talk, and then you get on Skype, and the other one's not read the chapter. Like, what a dagger. Has that happened? Y'all are laughing. So I think there's, I think... I think, and that happens even, that's happened in our marriage a couple times. Four books, Four. I think. I've been like, hey, babe, we should read this book. And she reads the book, and I'm like, oh, gosh. But it truly devastated me. Four. I mean, I, it was, it was, it's her, it makes me books. feel like I'm not important. I feel unled. I feel confused. And it's I all feel, true. I feel foolish for yeah. thinking that, that this was going to happen, because that felt so vulnerable. So, um, I think to, to not here to, to I, like if if I were counseling you I would want to explore what are you hearing when she's saying she's struggling and what does that say about you um, and kind of work through those lies uh, so we're talking screw tape letter type lies what are you hearing that's not actually being said what is she saying manipulatively and unkindly to shame and punish you and that needs to be addressed and then also for you to to courageously risk and kind of yeah, be creative in ways in which you can connect um, to make this life that you y'all have chosen sustainable. We're going to transition to the material that we have for our last session. No, 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 no. no. Let me let me finish what I was about to say because it is for you and everyone else. 
Um, this can be information download and you miss it, okay? So where the rubber meets the road is you, you start connecting the dots for your heart and your marriage and not necessarily bringing it up like you just did, although very appreciative for that. Thank you. Um, you are more important and your marriage is more important to us than covering our material. And what you can take away from these conversations, I think everyone else can too. Um, so we want this to funnel down to the heart level and to the marriage level. Not that you would necessarily bring that up in the public forum here, but that that's the point. Mm -hmm. So you have embodied the point. Thank you for that. We are going to move on. We are going to save time for questions at the end. We feel like we have covered, um, in essence, a lot of what it is to live out of a Christ-like manhood and womanhood. We're going to talk about that a little explicitly here and what that looks like in marriage. We're going to kind of cruise. Um, I'm going to cover the men. You're going to cover the women. Yes? And um, we do have some, some thoughts on what maturity for the quadrants look like, but I think we've already kind of hit that by way of the individuals. So we could, if you want to ask a question about that, you can. But here we go. Christ-like manhood. <clears throat> Let's start with this. You really can't be Christ-like in any of your relationships unless you're actually falling more in love with Christ. Do you get that? You really have to be investing in your spiritual relationship with the Lord. Um, we're told that the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Think of the vine and the branches. John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Um, without being connected intimately to the vine, there is no fruit, and you should not expect fruit. You should not expect fruit of Christ-likeness in your relationships without being connected intimately to Christ himself. So, one of the results of this uh, would be a core identity of being in Christ. And this allows for the man to be confessional in his sin, that he would recognize his sin, that he would name it, that he would confess it, and ultimately that he would repent of it. That is very godly. Confession is really a good place to start in understanding what Christ-like manhood really looks like. Because it's laying down the facades. It's willfully subjecting yourself to your, your, your futility, your failure, your sin, and seeking redemption. <clears throat> now, as you engage your wife, transitioning from your relationship with the Lord to your wife, you have to understand that as a husband, you're putting that ring on your finger, your number one job under God's structure of, of who you are as a man is to shepherd your wife's heart. It's not your job. Uh, your job is something you do, you pay bills. Um, your number one job is to shepherd your wife's heart and your kids. And think about it like this, and this is teased out in the pastoral epistles. Whatever your particular pocket of ministry may be, and however good uh, you are at that, however much gifts you have and how you put yourself into that, it's all essentially for naught if you're not shepherding your wife. You must shepherd your wife. What does it mean to shepherd your wife? Well, a couple thoughts. If you don't know, it's okay to say that to your wife, to the other men in this room. Take a minute and just take a mental snapshot of the men in this room. Not necessarily these men are going to be intimate allies and connection partners for you, accountability buddies, Bible study buddies, but these men in this room are exposed to ideas that you have been exposed to 
and perhaps are more available to you than other men in the church for talking about marriage. Perhaps. And I would wager that we all need men in our lives to walk life with so that we can uh, certainly speak the truth in love, talk about what it's like to shepherd our wife, talk about what it's, it's not like when we're failing at shepherding our wife. Uh, but shepherding, just as a category, includes uh, several things. It includes uh, nourishing, leading, and protecting. So we'll talk about each one of those just a little bit. Shepherding as nourishing. Read through Ephesians 5, listen to the sermon I did, you know, try to glean something from it. Shepherding is nourishing. You're causing your wife to grow. You are leading her towards green pasture to nourishment. You are causing her to grow and become holy. This is the call of a man to shepherd his wife. Um, This is your number one ministry, if you will. Um, You must also lead your wife. Shepherds lead sheep. And as you're called to um, lead your wife, think of it as shepherding. Have a vision for her. Find the dignity. See her dignity. Call her to her dignity. But as you also see, if you want to use the word depravity, because it sort of ties in with dignity, think you know, the sin, like think about how she's living out of that false narrative, that, that, that relating style that is, um, is wounded in, in fig leaves, and have a vision and a direction for her. All of that, I think, does embody emotional risk and courage and vulnerability for you to actually create that vision and try to lead her somewhere. If you don't know where you're leading your wife, you're probably not leading your wife, men. That's the reality. We have to have a place that we're going as we shepherd our wives. Um, You are risking when you feel exposed and uncertain of how things will go. That's okay. The uncertainty proves that you're actually living out of your calling with courage to be vulnerable, to do something that exposes you. Now, not much will change in your marriage without this risk first in creating a culture of safety, of of knowing and being known without shame. So you must go before her. You have to lead her. You have to initiate. That's the whole picture. There's this, well, I'll save that. Um, So know ahead of time uh, that this is going to be painful and hard, and the curse of the fall promises us that um, that is going to war inside of us constantly. We also have to protect our wives. It's pretty hard to protect our wives um, if we are passive, if we're abdicating our responsibility. This is equivalent to surrender or neglect. Uh, Adam's silence in the garden. He was not protecting his wife, okay? Um, Now, I would say that you can't protect your wife unless you're with her. Think about that for a second. You actually have to be with your wife if you intend to protect her. You have to know her. You have to identify her strengths and weaknesses. You must know her heart in order to protect it. You must know her life and what she's facing if you're going to be able to protect her from the evil in the world and guide her, shepherd her. So this will require you not only to listen to your wife, but also ask good questions and to always seek to know deeper answers, deeper answers. And so protecting your wife necessitates an an intimacy in itself that you would even know her, that you would seek to know her at deeper and deeper levels. And it also calls you to protect her, um, not just with a physical presence, but an emotional presence, a willingness to engage. So being, you have to physically be in the battle line with your wife if you seek to protect her, physically. 
But you can be standing side by side with this woman and choose to not protect her, right? That's what Adam did. He was, he was with her. So there's a willingness to actually show up and engage that is very important for protecting your wife. And all of these things accumulate to what, what shepherding looks like. And so the call for us in Ephesians is to love your wife. The call in Ephesians is not a call to love her and have butterflies in your stomach, but to love her through service. Um, this is an action, and it's, it's, we're supposed to love her as Christ loved the church. And how did he do that? He gave himself up for her, the church. He died for her. He sacrificed for her. And why did he do it? That she might be holy. So again, we're getting back to the idea of causing your woman to flourish, causing your woman to grow, causing her to be the better version of herself, the redeemed version. And some concrete ways of doing that might just be this. Speaking the truth in love, like we've already mentioned, that would be a picture of pointing out the dignity that you see in your wife. That is incredibly encouraging for a woman, for you to name the internal beauty that she lives out of, that you see that may be covered in a woman protecting herself by being a little girl or a nice girl, or perhaps it's covered with this exterior that's tough and hard, and she's too afraid to to be open and vulnerable, but for you to call that out of her and invite that, that's beautiful. That's what a man should do. A man leads with strength in a way that he causes his woman to become soft and vulnerable and invitational. And also that you would speak the truth in love to the ways that she is living out of that facade, that sin. That's not unkind. That's loving. And for you to do that in a way that that gives her a vision for how you see her in the kingdom differently than that um, relating style. Mm-hmm. So calling out the dignity would be one time I was yelling at Luke about something, and he just looked at me, and he said, you don't have to be so tough. I know you're hurting. All the walls just blew down. Um, and... So calling out the dignity in what he saw rather than addressing the aggression and the toughness that I was putting on. Um, I think a a picture, again, of the depravity is not using you language of like, you're angry, you're tough, you're all these things. But, gosh, I hate that you feel the need to put up these walls. I'm experiencing this from you right now. I'm experiencing you being really tough, and I feel like I can't know you, and I feel like this isn't going to go well if that's what's happening. I feel like you're giving me this little little girl. I don't know what to do with her. Um, can, you, can you show up? Can you give me the real you? Um, that's calling out the depravity. That's naming her sin without shaming her and putting her in her place. So ready to move on. Um, Christ-like womanhood... Again, the first thing, there's no way that we can do this without being in a relationship constantly that we're falling in love with Christ. Um, I said last night that thing my dad used to say, you know, you're 100, you're, you know, 100% responsible for your 5 or 10%. Um, this is your responsibility to be following and falling in love with Christ. Yes, your spouse can play a big part into that. Your spouse can encourage that. You can do those things together. But if you're not doing those things together, it's on you to do it yourself. Um, so part of health and Christ-likeness for a woman is to own our equality of how we reflect his image and to see the dignity 
us using our voice, um, speaking the truth in love, using the same examples Luke used with the dignity and depravity. Call out your husband um, for the ways in which you see him reflecting God's image, but also call him out in the darkness that you see him living in. Um, We are mirrors to one another, and that's really vulnerable and really scary. Uh, That's why we gave the, you know, intimacy definition of to be be seen and known with no shame. Um, Live out of being a daughter of the king. Um, Live out of knowing who you are. Um, so that, therefore, you can move forth with courage and with tenderness. Um, Recognize your headship. Um, We are called to submit. Um, That statement doesn't come with precursors. We are called to submit. Now, I'm not, please don't hear me saying to submit to abuse. That is not okay. What I am saying, though, is we are called to submit to broken men. That is really hard. (laughs) So what does it look like? It looks like repenting, knowing we're not doing it well, and continuing to walk faithfully. Um, it, it requires us to show up and represent ourselves fully. If, if you are not speaking to the impact of your husband that is either being passive or aggressive in your home, you are not loving your husband well, and you are participating in the cycle that you may feel like you are a victim to. Let me add something right there. Mm-hmm. Um, because you ladies are equal in your very nature with your husbands, you're equal in dignity, um, yet there is a, a complementarian function in relationship, and that's what she's talking about right now. But let me encourage you this way. Submission is not silence. Um, in fact, I would say true submission requires you to show up and represent yourself fully to be somewhat, you know, uh, not argumentative, but to present your case, a decision-making, to, to bring your full self, wisdom, uh, experience, gifts, talents, whatever, to fully let it be communicated that you perhaps even disagree. Um, because I don't think true submission um, exists without you fully representing yourself. Does that make sense? So in in the women's struggle for control, um, one of the kindest things we can do for our husband is let them make mistakes and still submit and respect them anyway. Um, And letting, I love this story I use a lot in counseling. Um, This man and this woman, he was relating similarly to a little boy, kind of a nice boy, um, but he was kind of refusing to hear her or take responsibility for the one utility bill that she'd asked him to pay. She said, can you just take care of the electric bill every month? I got everything else. I manage everything else. If you could just take care of this, this would be really helpful. Um, And he continued to not do it, said, get late fees, and then she would just pay it, and she would just pay it, and she would just pay it. And finally, um, (laughs) the woman was challenged to um, let your husband's not, you you are enabling him. You are not loving him well by by letting him not feel the weight of his behavior. Leave it. You've used your voice. You've vocalized your needs kindly. Leave it. Uh, dinner, the lights went out. The lights went out so that all the final notices stuff, she would put it on his desk, even kindly communicate. The lights went out. Um, her tendency wasn't to buck up, although I think I would have been like, are you kidding me? And like lost my mind. But she got up. She went and got a bunch of candles. They were sitting at dinner. Lit some candles. Light it around but didn't say anything, not in a punishing way, but let him feel the weight of his behavior. 
Let him feel the weight of his passivity. If you continue to manage his feelings getting hurt by you or his feelings getting hurt by others, you are letting him play that game and you are equally to blame. So as we are, as men are called to lead, be willing to look at how the, what are the ways you're getting in the way of that? Um, and this man sat there, hopefully in, I don't know, I won't say hopefully in shame, but he felt the weight of it. And she didn't shame him. She didn't punish him. She just let him feel the weight of it. Next day, he called and, you know, turned the lights back on. And guess what? The lights <laughs> were paid for every month. Now, the goal was not for the lights to be paid for. The goal was for her to stop letting her husband be complacent where, where, where their marriage was. Um, I think that's a really helpful example of what that could look like. Um, so we're also called to respect our husbands. And again, that sentence doesn't, it ends. Like there's no, if he is respectable, if he is this. Again, please don't sit in abuse. <laughs> but uh, what does it look like to uh, respect your husband knowing that he will fail you? Um, and I think communicating your struggle in that. It's hard for me to respect you when you don't pay the bill that I ask you to pay. That's really hard for me not punishing him, not shaming him, but speaking the impact, speaking to how you are experiencing that. If you don't tell your husband uh, how you may not respect him in a given situation, season of life, um, what do you think is going to happen to that that feeling? Mm -hmm. Probably he's going to come out with some hostility, some resentment, some eye-rolling, some distance, some sexual deadness. You're going to tell your husband you don't respect him, Right? Like, it's not going to be a secret. So let's do the Christ-like thing and name that mm -hmm. and move towards your husband inviting intimacy instead of being passive-aggressive in the way that you push him away because you resent him, you don't respect him. Mm -hmm. A big a big takeaway here, too, is as you as were hoping to call to live in vulnerability and knownness in your marriage, um, if you're marriage or individuals, if you as an individual aren't known by other people, um, it's going to be really hard for you to grow. Uh, if your marriage isn't known by other people, it's going to be really hard for you to grow. One of my favorite questions as a counselor is, what's your sex life like? And I'll typically ask it second or third session. And I like that question because it, it, it's very exposing of kind of what's really being played out. It makes people uncomfortable, which I don't like that part, although it's sort of funny to see people squirm. But I think there's this, there's this level of vulnerability that comes when we're willing to talk about the things that we're not supposed to talk about. Um, you know, Song of Songs like a, a pornography, if you really read it the way it was written. So it's okay to talk about these things within safe community, within appropriate gender back and forth. So I think, uh, you know, like Luke said, look around. Who, who knows about your marriage? Who knows about the way you guys interact? Who knows about the hardship? If your answer is no one, this is going to be really hard. Um, and so I would invite you to invite others in. I'm not saying tell the whole church. I'm not saying post it on Facebook. I'm saying choose wisely. Find someone and say, hey, that you can call and say, oh, I got in a fight with my husband. I know I'm wrong, but I'm also really hurting. Can you, can you listen to me for a minute and just talk? Let me transition to mm -hmm. more of the Christ-like marriages. Mm -hmm. The uh, obligation of every Reformed pastor is to quote Tim Keller at some point. 
We've already done that somewhat, but we'll do it again because <clears throat> I want those uh, stars in my crown. The purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment to help your spouse become his or her future glory self through sacrificial service. The purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment to help your spouse become his or her future glory self through sacrificial service. That's what Ephesians 5 is all about. Ephesians 5.21, before we get into the specific exhortation for man and woman in that relationship of marriage, says that we're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a picture of mutual submission. To be Christ-like in your marriage is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, not out of dutifulness, but out of a love for Christ, again, being connected to the vine, and living out of that, seeking to let your spouse stand on your shoulders, to, to lift your spouse up in a way that blesses them, to show them real love through service, um, through laying down your life and your priorities uh, for your spouse. Laying down your comfort for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we could keep what we have here pretty short. Um, add what you'd like, but I'm going to add one other thing here. Christ-like marriages, as Megan has alluded to already, represent the body of Christ. And we see that in Ephesians 5, that uh, as Christ is the head of the church, the man is the head of the woman. This is a real representation of how God has had um, throughout Scripture, his, re- his relationship with us is mirrored in the relationship of husband and wife. So, Christ-like marriages represent the body of Christ, but Christ-like marriages should also be a part of the body of Christ. Okay, what do I mean? I mean that you should be actively engaged in the corporate function of worship in the community of believers. Um, being a part of the body of Christ, I think, is a picture of inviting, like she's mentioned, people to know you and extending the intimacy that exists, hopefully, and will be created at greater and greater levels in your marriage, expanding that into the church, inviting other people to know you at greater and greater levels the same way you would your spouse. And what happens when you do that is this incredible, beautiful, authentic, um, nurturing relationship. This is why we flew to Florida just last week, is to spend time with people who get us, not that we're not got here, but that we have a, a level of trust and relationship with these couples that is an intimacy that um, feels known and safe and that they can and do speak a lot of truth and love to us and make us better. Mm-hmm. And we are indebted to them, uh, and God has used those kind of relationships throughout our story in the church and out of, well, really in the church, to bring us closer to himself. Anticipate it to look messy. <laughs> um, if your marriage doesn't look messy, you're probably in quadrant one, and I'm a little, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for a little more mess in your life. Um, if you're in quadrant four, the other extreme, you're really messy, and I'm hoping for some control and rest 
for you. So I think to really acknowledge this is going to look messy. As you risk and lean into this, it's not going to be perfect. Again, men, you are serving controlling and uh, really struggling women. And women, we are following very broken men. That's messy. And as you invite others into your community, uh, they may not know how to engage that. They may not know how to love you well. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't show up. That doesn't mean that we don't risk. Um, again, I'm not saying you got to tell everyone at the 30 women Bible study what's going on, although you're welcome to. Um, I would welcome that. Um, but pull someone aside. Um, get to know someone and be willing to kind of share the real stuff that you're experiencing and that your spouse is experiencing. If your spouse is unwilling to do that, um, you need to call them to more. Um, you need to set some strong boundaries of this is what this needs to look like. Because we can't grow. I can maybe grow, but we can't grow if both people, if your marriage isn't moving in that direction. That happens, I think, a lot where there's one partner, often the woman, will first come to counseling and say, Oh, this is a mess. I'm wanting to work through this. And her husband's not only not willing to come to counseling or he'll come to counseling and act like she's the whole problem. Or, but the, the act of, okay, let's take this out of this room. I can't. I, I mean, I hope my time with you is helpful, but I can't fix this. Christ can fix this, but you need other people in this. Invite other people in. Um, and that's often where the breakdown can happen. And so be willing to invite, invite that in. You will be connecting in the brokenness with each other. Yeah. And let's just pause on that for a second. One of the best parts of our story of redemption and our upswing in our marriage was realizing our marriage is messed up. And not moving past that, not putting a silver lining around the, the, the cloud, but just saying, this is a storm cloud. And us both sitting in how much that sucked. And just really grieving together, even as much as we were still blaming each other, um, which is funny. Just think about this for a second. As you point to someone, you point one finger at them, you point three at yourself. How about that? How about that? So um, one final thought here is just as we've been talking about community, the only thing that grows in isolation is shame. That's true of your heart, I believe, and I think that's true of your marriages. Um, we're not created to do this thing alone, and we really shouldn't try. And the more we are connected to Jesus, who has given us his identity, we are free to be a lot more as the church like an Alcoholics Anonymous group where we stand up here and we say, Hi, my name is Luke, and I am this. Although you're not merely this, you're also a redeemed um, person with a new heart. And we can live in the tension of being both redeemed and totally, totally broken. Mm -hmm. That's the church. Mm -hmm. And the more we embody that, the more I think we're going to grow individually and collectively in our marriages and in our church. Mm -hmm. So, Real quick, I wanted to just give you guys a few resources that Luke and I enjoy uh, and have used for counseling. And uh, they're just books. Um, we may have some of them in the library. Luke and I own all of these. Um, they're great. Um, the first one in my favorite book on marriage is called Intimate Allies. It's by Dan Allender and Longman. They wrote it together. Um, I think it is the best one out there that I can find. Um, 
just to be frank. And that's the one I use if I do premarital. If I do premarital counseling, you'll, you have to read that. Um, Meaning of Marriage by Keller um, is helpful as well. Um, the Meaning of Marriage. Um, the Marriage Builder, although super old, written by our fellow Larry Crabb, um, it is really helpful because it's pretty practical. He gives some really... Some of those practical things of like, okay, I see the sin now. Where do I go from here? And he's kind of giving some uh, clinical, even helpful things to kind of move us out of shame, move us out of the stuckness that we get stuck in. Um, uh, Marriage Builder. Um, Sheet music uh, is debatable by some. I think there are some helpful pieces. If you have a hard time talking about sex with your spouse, um, this will kind of help you talk about it. You should be talking about your sex life. It's really important. Um, It's really hard to talk about that, I know. So um, that book will kind of maybe give you a language of kind of how to talk about that and what, what what that can look like. We also like to say, if you're not talking about sex, you're probably not talking about marriage. So just a little something. Uh, Kevin Lehman, Dr. Kevin Lehman. Um, this is a workbook that I've used with couples, but I think you could, for the most part, you could do it on your own, even if you didn't have a counselor guiding you through it. It's called Becoming an Emotionally Focused Couple. There's a book, and then there's a workbook. You could just order the workbook. It's by Johnson. Um, so there's a frame of counseling called Emotionally Focused Therapy, which I think is really helpful. But it, it, oftentimes uh, we have a hard time connecting in what we're feeling and how to express that to one another. And this book is super practical. You kind of do the homework, and then you come back together, and you talk through it. So if you're wanting to work through something like that together, I think this is a, just a helpful resource out there. He's not a Christian, so you're not going to be dealing with Christian language. There's nothing non-biblical about it, uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's written by a psychologist. So we're going to transition into some questions. Um, last thing, though, um, information does not change you. Uh, does not change your heart. Does not change your marriage. The Holy Spirit does that. But uh, being made in the image of a Trinitarian relational God, we believe that change often happens in the context of relationships and community. So the best thing that some of you may do for your marriage at this point might just be to open yourselves up to another couple or to someone you trust, and to start doing life together, um, to be able to grow together. So reading books are great. Relationships may be better. Um, Also, as a way of invitation, um, Thursday nights for the next three weeks at 7 p.m., if you would like to be a part of a marital process group, I'm going to facilitate that. Thursday nights at 7, the next three weeks, uh, a process group where you can come and sit. Um, if your spouse is out or working, you can come as an individual, and we can just kind of banter about what marriage is like right now, what living out of your, uh, what living out of your relating styles is like, um, and just kind of working towards growth together as couples. So you're invited um, I will need to know if you intend to come. If you're interested, we can talk more. Let's do some questions. Okay. 
Such a good question that I have not even considered it. And the answer is, if that's what it takes, then that's what there will be. Okay. Um, Are there any questions that anyone kind of wants to ask or interact with the material that we just covered openly? And we can, or we can kind of just dive into these. Cool. I'm just going to pull these out, and we'll, there's a few of them, which is awesome. So we'll try to spend as much time on each one as we can and get through these questions. How do you address the little girl or the little boy and overcome the fear that you may be harming them as often as the reaction is defensive or hurt when called out or questioned? First point. How do you address the issue when they are behind that defensive? Mm, when you so desperately want to protect, heal, and grow? How do you address the little boy or the little girl and overcome the fear that you may be harming them as often as their reaction is defensive or hurt when called out or questioned? I think the last thing I heard was protect. Um, that sounds like this person is protecting that individual from growing and keeping that individual from moving. Um, I understand that there's a fear because little boy and little girl can often act out um, in harmful ways, um, uh, you know, as far as being helpless, um, the cutting. Uh, there's a lot of other ways in which... You could live that out, um, but I think uh, getting over the fear is essentially getting over the fact that you're participating, owning the fact that you're sinning by managing that person and ke and keeping them there. The word, um, whenever a woman tells me that she's protecting her husband, I, I kind of do one of those. Um, I cringe a little bit because, yes, I think we are to to honor and respect our husbands, but when we are when we are living in fear of hurting a little boy or a little girl, um, you are managing and protecting, and you are equally participating. So it's acknowledging that that is sin. Um, it's acknowledging that um, you are also powerless to make them change. You're also powerless. You're, you're keeping them where they are. I think that's good. I'm more visual, so I'll read these. <laughs> Uh, what would it be like for someone coming from a quadrant two upbringing to engage someone emotionally when we have no real reference point or launching point for that level of engagement? I might need to read it again. What would it look like for someone coming from a quadrant two upbringing to engage someone emotionally when we have no real reference point or launching point for the for that level of engagement? Well, I think we've covered a little bit in the sense of owning that, just saying, gosh, I want to. Like I hear in that question, I long to engage. I want to do this. I just don't know how. Um, that is a beautiful conversation starter. And my guess is it would be, relatively smooth sailing in that moment for a little bit from there. Um, seeing if if they're, what was the quadrant two? 
quadrant two, is that what it says? So we're we're dealing with an more of an aggressive man. So to to humble yourself and to say, "Ooh, I don't know what I'm doing. All the stuff I've been doing is not working, um, and I want to learn how to do that do that better." Um, why don't you tell me about yourself? Why don't you tell me what's it like to be married to me? Mm. What's it like to have me as your your partner um, or the, for the woman? Um, in party girl, little girl, good girl, to um, be willing to intensify her risk and to ask. How can we better cling to our identity in Christ when we are so entrenched in our sinful, broken identities, which equates to being afraid of being known, or even to differentiate between the various identities that we have with work, Christ, family, sin. So how do we better cling to our identity in Christ when we are so entrenched in our sinful, broken identities? How do we do that? Hmm. Well, something strikes me there about being in, in the vine, working on your relationship with the Lord, even putting yourself in the spiritual disciplines that may not even feel um, like the thing you want to do, but kind of wearing them until God does that uh, common grace work, or, or, or rather that um, ordinary means of grace by just being in the Word and prayer and, and kind of finding your identity in Him. But there's also something there about um, just the, the fear of being known. Um, again, that kind of puts you in a, a position of not growing um, because of the shame that would be laden in focusing on your sinful, broken identities. And someone recently told me, um, Roger Shepard, uh, who I love, uh, told me um, we should not focus as much on not being our our sin, not living out of our sin, or not uh, not focusing so much on not relating out of the poor relating style we have, but rather being as Jesus was, to relate as Jesus, to live as Jesus did, to remember not as much our sin and our depravity, but rather focus on our dignity. Because um, that's what really creates movement, more so than laying on ourselves the, the weight of sin. So, I hope that's sufficient. Are there resources or ideas for how to nurture your marriage or to do the work needed to pursue intimacy with little kids, a.k.a. little time or energy or deployments, time apart? Um. Yeah, so I think there often, oh, as we were talking earlier, sometimes you can't prioritize because you're not physically with or there truly are those, to- like, you're just not around. Um, but I think, again, even just vocalizing, hey, I see that we've not spent much time together. Uh, I see that you are struggling. I see that this our marriage is struggling. And I want you to know that I'm aware of it. I want you to know that I see it. Um, I'm speaking to kind of the men right now, and I, I want you to know that I, I want to do something about it. Um, I see you. Mm-hmm. I, I see that this is hard. Um, and I think to kind of, you know, go back to go back to that place of um, going to other people, um, taking the intentional, proactive method to um, go on a date, do something that's going to connect you, um, and taking taking that initiative for a, for a woman, um, it is going to be to to receive that risk, to use your voice, ask for more, 
as you are going to ask for more because you were made for more and to um, be willing to follow and submit to your husband's leadership in that way. Without expecting mind reading, how can we ex- uh, how can we have our spouse accept some of the burden of remembering all of the adult responsibilities in life? Sometimes just having to ask to have the dishes done is exhausting. It seems like there's some underlying resentment in that question. Um, perhaps the, the spouse that's being thought of here um, relates in a way that... At, doesn't engage with the adult responsibilities in life, or so it seems, um, without accepting mind reading. Um, I guess the, the answer would just be speaking that, um, and it, it, yes, it would be exhausting, and yes, it would be at times uh, heartbreaking that you would have to continually ask for the things that you need, the things that you want, the things that make your home function, even if you and your spouse function in that home very, very differently, one needing order, one needing less order, uh, representing yourself and inviting them into that so that you can function as a marital unit and be one flesh instead of two distinct fleshes, that would probably be a place where the exhaustion would probably be the place of confrontation for actually building intimacy. The, the speaking to the impact of that, so not like if you don't help me load the dishwasher, um, we have dirty dishes. But when you don't help me load the dishwasher, I feel invisible. I feel like what I do doesn't matter. I mean, I, I'm I'm naming things that you may I, please don't wear what I'm wearing, but come up with your what you're feeling. What is your emotional experience when your spouse does not support you in this way? And offer not, hey, I need these things done. That's busy girl. But, hey, I, I, it makes me feel loved. The impact of this is these things. Um, and when you don't do this, the impact of this are these things. Um, that invites change and doesn't shame change. You spoke to women inviting men to be courageous and lead. How can men invite women to be vulnerable and risk? That's a good question. Maybe practical ways, uh, as you've touched on this some already. Calling out dignity, I think. Um, again, uh, if you're the man, I'm assuming, you know, spoke to a women inviting men. How can men invite women? It's going to be speaking past the facade that's in front. So looking through it and so speaking to the little girl, you might say something like, gosh, I want to know you more, but I feel like you're just giving me a three-year-old. That may be a little intense to say, but, you know, I, I, I feel like I can't know you. There's not much sustenance there. What's going on? Um, or, or two, like I gave the example of Luke saying, oh, I know that you're hurting, even though you're being a raging, crazy person right now. Um, that is calling out the dignity in what in someone, which will then invite them to be vulnerable. And then I was, a- in that situation, I was able to then share how hurt I had felt, and I wasn't even aware that I was hurt. I just thought I was angry. Um, So I think maybe that's helpful example. I would also just add, actions speak louder than words. Mm -hmm. If a man wants to see his woman risk and be vulnerable, he probably needs to embody that Mm -hmm. and and show her, set that culture to invite her by way of action, by way of seeing that it it is a risk, and yet I'm going to trust you enough to do that. Mm -hmm. Can you explain how a party girl and a seductive boy can be boring? 
so um, it's their life looks really fun. Um, so the opposite of boring, but the sustenance of the relationship is boring. The intensity, the lack of depth um, with a party girl and with a um, seductive boy, you're getting the facade. You're not actually getting who they are. So therefore, it's boring because there's no depth. There's no realness. It's all fun and games. I told you all about the girl that I was in grad school with. She was Everything was funny. It was fun. We had, she, we had a great time, but there was always jokes. There was always playfulness. It was always, let's chase the next happy hour. This is so fun. And there was no, hey, how are you doing? And so that's how that's boring is there's no, there's no real depth. I know this isn't a parenting conference, but how do we start guiding our kids into biblical man and womanhood and help them into healthy marriages? Well, <clears throat> one of the things that we believe is that the best thing you can do in child rearing is to have a healthy marriage. So, in the same way that a husband needs to embody what it is to risk and move first, um, the marriage relationship needs to embody what that would be so that you can, you know, most lessons that kids get seem to be um, caught rather than taught. Yeah? So, you, you feel it. It's the relationship that you see and experience that you live in. It's it's something that is more than words, and um, certainly you need to make that explicit at times, but if you want them to grow up to embody that Ephesians 5 passage, you kind of need to live it. Mm-hmm. Talk about a motivator, right? Uh, you, I, I sit with a, a little boy, and uh, the only thing that he'll say is not his wife that'll make him change, it's his kid. Um, well, I, I don't want my kid to grow up in this home, so i got to figure out how to make this work. I don't care that my wife's miserable and dying inside, but I don't want my kid to see this. And um, that's really sad. Um, my hope is that we'll lean a little. So uh, another piece is that uh, Dr. one of our professors used to say, I told my girls when they asked me, do you love me? I'd say yes. If they asked me, do they, who do you love most? I love your mommy most. Um, and Children should experience that. Um, we should love our spouse more than we love our kids. If a kid is wondering, Daddy loves me as much as he loves Mommy, uh, we're getting into some trouble. And so, I, again, modeling it for them is the best thing that you can do to, yeah. to, to do that. And so, therefore, showing what it looks like in brokenness to do that is having a couple over and saying, Mommy and Daddy need to have some conversations. Let's go upstairs. Go to counseling. Um, be honest. Show up to community group and actually say what's going on. Represent yourself. Lean in. Um, that is modeling uh, what that looks like. The idea of the woman being equal and submissive is contradictory in my mind and in most minds. That's fine. What definitions can I use for these two words to make sense together? We tried uh, to lay out from Genesis how this makes sense, that women and men are created equal in nature, equal in dignity, equal in God's image, and yet distinct in function. Um, We see in Ephesians how Christ is the head of the church, a symbol of authority, and that that the man is created with authority from Genesis to both name the animals, name the woman, and to lead. And so there's a complementary function um, that I, I can see how that, that feels opposed, um, and yet 
it's, it's, you know, thinking biblically the body of Christ. We are a body. Christ is the head. We all submit to Christ. But in the body of Christ, in this room, this little microcosm of Christ Presbyterian Church, we have elbows, we have knees, we have ankles and toes. We're, we're equal in unity, but we are distinct in function. How does that play out in this sense? I hope that makes some sense, but it's definitely something that, that there's a tension there, I think. I think uh, the word equal, we could kind of interchange value. There's, there's equal value. Um, you are seen as uh, reflecting God's image uniquely um, in a way that your, your spouse can't. Um, and then also the a real something to think of, submissive, there, there's something, um, if you've experienced this, there's something really restful about submitting to your husband that brings a soulful, when I, when I know that I'm being led well, oh, the rest that my heart and soul and physiologically my body even responds um, that I experience. And so that word submission doesn't feel, so you know I've owned it. I'm a tough girl. I'm intense. I kind of, I want to be in control. I have gifts to lead. I kind of, that's my go-to. I want to submit. I don't want to be in control but I need to know who's in control in order for that to be helpful, in order for that to be made easier. Does that make sense? So that, I don't know if those few kind of word categories were helpful, but maybe. Can someone cycle through all five categories? Yes, mm-hmm. simple, yes. Um, how can you lead if you've abused your authority or leadership in the past? Such a good question. Um, thank you, brother. Um, thank you. I have done that much. Um, and there was a time where I just felt like I needed to ask Megan permission in order to lead because I was so unworthy. And yet there was a time where I had to come to this point of realization that it is not ever my duty to ask permission to lead, I've been given permission to lead. And I constantly live out of a place of abdicating that if I need her to bless that. My leadership, if done well, would be service and sacrificial love and creating a vision, moving towards her in a way that uh, dignifies her um, and raises her up as opposed to pushing her down. And so I think as, as much as all of us men um, are really not worthy in, in many regards to lead our wives because we are failures, when you have abused your wife, um, it should create a humility um, that causes you to lead in a different way out of a, a place of brokenness. And Allender, in a different place, I love this guy, he talks about leading with a limp. And um, a man who has wounded his wife and ha- has acknowledged the wounded wife and how she's been impacted by his leadership should lead in such a way that reflects that with compassion and tenderness. And as much as we as husbands, and even those who would abuse their wives in a myriad of ways, fall off the horse, we have to get back on the horse. It's our call, and our wives need us to lead.
think just owning that, even by writing this down, is such movement. Um, and I think turning to your wife, I think one of the one of the most one of the big change moments that I have in my head from Luke and I was Luke looking at me and saying, you know, tell me the stories. Tell me what I did. Tell me what happened. Um, and it was so painful, obviously. Um, but it softened my heart, and it let me know that he knew the impact. He knew that he had hurt me. Um, and yet I trusted him in that moment because he was willing to hear impact. He was willing to sit in his sin, knowing that it had almost destroyed me. Um, so I would encourage you to look at your wife. Um, and if you need help doing that, I'd be happy to sit with you. And we'd be happy to sit with you. But look at your wife and say, tell me how this has impacted you. What have I left? What's the wake that I have left because of this? And I think connection will come um, with that willingness to risk. True brokenness and true humility have a real way of creating intimacy. Through years of marriage, I have failed more often than not. Yes, me too. My failures have caused such pain and hurt that I feel like change will not take effect or show fruit Anytime soon. The lack of change or slowness in change makes my attempts to change seem futile. Can you offer an idea or tip to see change in the marriage? I want our marriage to be better, but I can't change the past. This resonates with, with me so deeply because this feels like my story where most of the Wisdom that I've acquired throughout life has come through making the, the wrong decisions and learning from those decisions and the relational fallout that has been caused by that and feeling at times very powerless, very futile like Adam, um, lack of impact in my wife's heart, lack of ability to create movement and growth um, and being enslaved to the past, being enslaved to the the identity that I've created of myself and the way that I've related to my wife and hurt my wife and feeling like it is in at times hopeless. Um, and I would just say, push on, um, continue faithful um, to the cause, faithful to the woman. And even naming this to your wife, I think is really the point of, of connection where you just say, I have failed utterly so much that I feel like I, I have lost uh, my role, my ability to impact. It feels hopeless at times. And just naming that as your, as your new starting point has a real power. This is a really hopeful place to be. As I Absolutely. read this, I, I, I am sad, but I'm also smiling um, because there's an acknowledgement of brokenness and there's a desire for more the language even used in this is, is what we had talked about last night with the impacts of the curse. You will feel like you are just tilling a ground that just you're going to have to keep mowing it. That's, that's the way God says men will uniquely feel the curse. So you are beautifully leaning into the impact of the fall, um, which will make you long for more, which is the point. That's, that's what we want you to walk away with is, Coming alive to the sin of your marriage will actually 
assist you in moving towards Christ and moving towards each other. And so this is, this is a really hopeful marriage. I've got all the hope in the world for you. Um, I, I think that there's so much there to um, do that. You, you can't change the past, but as I said last question, um, you can be willing to explore it. You can be willing to ask how it's impacting the present. Um, you can be willing to look into it. Um, can't change it. You're right. I can't. We can't change our story. We, bo- we both wish we could. Um, I don't our, even know our, if I'd say that. Actually, our story but. is actually the best part of our marriage because it's in knowing the depth of brokenness that the glory of Christ is actually revealed. Mm-hmm. I think some closing remarks are in order. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just like to say, you know, anytime I preach, um, it's incredibly humbling. And being here, this does not mean that we think of ourselves as experts on marriage. Really, we are stumbling towards maturity and growth the same way anyone else are. Um, please know that. And we've picked up some categorical things along the way, and we hope that these things are helpful. But we we want to grow um, with you. And um, thank you so much for a, just being here, giving your time and your energy and your, your kids and, you know, everything that this means. It's It's humbling for us, for me, to facilitate a conversation about how we could be more connected and intimate in our marriages. So really, thank you for trusting us enough to listen to our voice for six hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's any questions or remarks, we can do that. Otherwise, um, if you want to take advantage of the child care tonight, it's from 5 to 8, and we will provide cheese, pizza, and water, and Capri Sun for your kids. And and we should know the numbers for that, which will accumulate somehow very soon. Can I close this in prayer? Okay. Father God, um, thank you that we can be broken in your presence, um, and, and yet knowing that we're really not broken in your presence. We're actually fully redeemed fully seen as sons of God in your presence, wearing the actual righteousness of Christ that is a gift to us, we have nothing to hide. Our sin can be known in community. Um, Our facades can be laid down. Lord, would you bless these marriages? Would you grow these hearts? Would you use these things that we've discussed to disrupt and comfort these hearts and these marriages, and would you do it for your glory to bring us closer to yourself, closer to each other, closer to the world around us. We ask these things in the matchless name of Christ, our Savior, our head. Amen.